Hello and welcome to episode 13 of the Trapping Today podcast. If you listened to last episode, uh, you realize I made a promise that I did not fulfill. Um, I was going to talk about a subject and I got so sidetracked and spent so much time on other things that I never did get around to it. So that's why I'm recording this. And basically what it is, we'll get right into it. Um, a, a public radio station um, from one of the western states, uh, somebody contacted me from there, and I won't say which state because I don't know uh, whether they want uh, this to be public information right now, but um, they they want to do an interview about uh, bobcat fur prices, the fur market, bobcats, and uh, trapping in general, and how that that all relates. And so they, you know, they found information from on trapping today and figured I might be a, a good resource for that. Um, I've done, I've done one of these before. I did something in Missouri with Missouri public radio and I, the, the interview that was probably two years ago and I never actually got to listen to the interview. Uh, the guy called me from the studio and they, they uh, had all the recording things turned on, and you know we talked for 20, 30 minutes. I thought it went pretty well. I was a little nervous about it, um, but I never did uh, get get any follow up on that, and I, I never did get to hear it. So I, I don't know if if the story got bumped or if if the story aired, but they didn't put it online or or whatever. But um, <clears throat> anyway, you, you know how the, these things go. Stories uh, basically. You know, story ideas come about um, when there are topics of interest, and certain things have a little bit of buzz associated with them. And so, I'm just going to try and read you a little bit about this request without actually um, revealing um, too much information. So, this is from a reporter working a story about bobcats and the current market for their pelts. Um, talked about how. Bobcat pelts continue to do well, while other, um, you know, other items are not. And they want to talk about. Uh, and and by the way, this interview is tomorrow, so <laughs> I decided to record this podcast just to kind of get my brain thinking, and uh, get prepared and think about the main points that I should be expressing in tomorrow's interview. Um, you know, I just don't want to go into it unprepared. I feel like I'm representing us as trappers, and well, first of all, let's let's sit back for a second and think about whether or not a guy should even take this interview. And I, I consider that for a minute. Um, consider just saying no, I'm not going to do it. Uh, but I kind of I have a bit of I have some thoughts on that, and. <clears throat> I'm kind of of the mind that if if somebody has their mind made up that they they know the story they're going to tell um, before they do any interviews, then uh, they're they're going to be biased about that story regardless. And and there's nothing you're going to do to convince them otherwise. And if you're not smart, you know some of the things you say could be used against you. Um. I did not get that impression with 
with this request and follow-up email kind of confirm that um, again we, who knows in, until we actually see uh, the, the results of the story uh, it, it could go either way but um, thinking about it a little bit you know if I take the interview I have a chance to represent trappers and I feel I feel like I've thought about the um, a lot of the, the points and the, the the ideas associated with with these issues um, as much as, or more than a lot of other people have. So I feel that I know the arguments made on both sides of the issue and, and where we stand as trappers in general, though we don't always agree. Um, but I feel like I can I can represent us pretty well and, and hopefully speak well for the trapping community. Um, so anyway, that being said, um, it could totally blow up in, in my face, but um, I decided to to, to go for it. So anyway, they asked to do a recorded phone interview uh, about the market and what makes bobcat pelts more valuable and and what you know about populations of bobcat and how well they're doing. Um, are they more valuable because there are fewer bobcats these days? Um, and and then, um, I again, I don't want to share too much because I don't want to... Uh, you know, some of this may be confidential, but uh, there there was something in there. There there was an impression that maybe states don't necessarily know much about their bobcat populations, and that bobcat populations may be declining as a result of this trapper harvest, and and that immediately when I saw that and I, I read into that a little bit um, whether or not this this reporter f- uh, feels that way I don't think they do I think they're just throwing these questions out the fact that that's even questioned is uh, is very mu- very much made me feel that I, I needed to provide to do this interview and and try and set the record straight so I sit down for a few hours this weekend and I I did a little bit of research online um, on on bobcat populations because I knew that wasn't true. I, I knew I know that I know as a trapper who's trapped in multiple states and covers this whole uh, subject that number one bobcat populations are doing great and increasing in most places in the United States, and number two states have a very good handle on bobcat population numbers. Um, more so than most most any other uh, fur bear, so so one of the things that I feel pretty strongly about, I'm I'm gonna try to to express this in tomorrow's interview, uh, respectfully, confidently, and hopefully be pretty effective at, at demonstrating, um, you know, not not trying to be not trying to be too forceful about it, but just kind of showing that. You know we have a pretty good handle on this, on what's going on with these populations, um, and and these state agencies are doing a very good job, I believe, in in managing their populations. In fact, they are probably um, they are probably being overly conservative in most states where bobcats are managed. So anyway, that we had a. A little follow-up, couple follow-up emails, and uh, you know there was an assurance this is not a this is not an anti-trapping story, um, and they're 
you know, just interested in, in populations and tra- uh, trapping pelt and kind of pelt value, just kind of trying to understand um, what is going on with with this whole interaction between trappers and bobcat populations uh, and, and from a trapper's mouth. Because, um, you know, as you know, it's, it's not like people can just have this the resident trapper on call that they can call up and do media interviews. Um, so anyway, um, we'll be doing it. But I, I want to brush up a little bit on my bobcat knowledge. Um, and, and just as it relates to um, bobcat populations overall. And one of the places that I wanted to start um, when I was doing research, I looked through a bunch of this stuff, and the the IUCN. If you're thinking about uh, overall how certain species are doing, the IUCN Red List. That's kind of like um, it's the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. So uh, essentially, a conservationist group that's tracking populations of of wildlife uh, throughout the world, and the I just I was curious what does the IUCN say about bobcats because they're like wicked conservative about if if there's any doubt that something might be uh, threatened in any way they're um, they're they're very much you know raise the red flag um, and according to the IUCN just I'm just going to read this off briefly the bobcat is listed as least concern because it is abundant and wide wide ranging and is not suspected to be declining at a rate that would qualify it for near threat. Bobcats are widely distributed and their current range consists of most of the United States, southern Canada, and Mexico. Um, local threats may present challenges, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Flo- this is interesting. Florida is the only U.S. state to report bobcat declines, with bobcat observations decreasing as invasive pythons have increased in the southern part of the state. Um, some states, uh, some concern exists about sustainability bag limits. Um, West Virginia was a little concerned. Um, and then they talked about other possible possible threats. Uh, <clears throat> but basically, what, what the IUCN is saying is bobcats are doing well. And I actually, I looked through um, another write-up. I don't have it in front of me right now. That said, that bobcats are. Oh, I wish I could pull this up. I think it said they were increasing in like 40 um, states in the U.S. Let me see if. Let me take a pause and I'll I'll look through that data. All right. Yes, we have Roberts and Crimmins. Roberts and Crimmins. Roberts is from Ithaca, New York, at Cornell. Uh, Crimmins with University of Montana, Missoula. And they did a survey of bobcat population status and management in North America. And the sort of the subtitle of this article was Evidence of Large-Scale Population Increase. Okay, so uh, basically they did a survey. They contacted uh, state agencies throughout the contiguous United States to ask about bobcat management and what their bobcat populations were doing. Uh, they received responses from 47 states, Mexico, and seven Canadian provinces. Reports indicate that bobcats occur in each of the contiguous states except for Delaware. Populations were reported to be stable or increasing in 40 states, 
with six states unable to report population trends and only one state, which we mentioned Florida, reporting decreases. Um, and, and now we get into the question of uh, states not knowing how, what their bobcat populations are. Um, of the 47 states in which bobcats occur, 41 employ some sort of form of population monitoring. Population density estimates were available for 2 million square kilometers. Um, the estimated bobcat range in the United States with population estimates between like 1.4 and 2.6 million uh, <clears throat> individuals w within that range and then 2.3 to 3.5 million uh, for the entire U.S. So um, basically so these results indicate the bobcat populations have increased throughout the majority of the range in North America since the late 1990s and that populations within the United States are much higher than previously suggested. So, um, this, uh, this interview might not go great because um, if, if there is some um, sort of a, a desire to get at an interesting story or compelling story, it's, it's not going to be here. It's, there's not... There is no issue, and, and I'm going to make that pretty clear. I'm going to try to make it clear that there is no issue with the potential decreasing bobcat populations from trapping. There just isn't. And in fact, uh, many states have opened up new opportunities for bobcat trapping because of increased uh, populations. Um, new Hampshire had a proposal, uh, I believe that passed, um, to open up bobcat trapping after they did a, a large-scale research study that found uh, bobcat numbers had increased substantially in the state and uh, several there was at least one or two states in the Midwest that just opened bobcat um, trap trapping and hunting seasons as well so cats are doing well um, <clears throat> but I wanted to to really get into this a little in a little more detail so I I went to um, I started looking at some individual data for uh, <clears throat> the different states and throughout the U.S. and and I did focus a lot on Western states because that's where this uh, this story is going to primarily to air. So basically, I went through and and looked at a bunch of state reports on uh, bobcat harvest information and. Uh, you know a little bit about fur prices. You're kind of already familiar with fur prices and how they fluctuate over the years. Um, <clears throat> but what I found was initially when you search, it's pretty hard to find good data off of instant Google search from state agencies. Um, as we know, um, state government can work at a very slow pace, and the um, websites are not always easiest to navigate necessarily and they you're not always able to get the results as quickly as you might in other areas of the web <clears throat> so but that being said after digging a little bit I was able to find a lot of these reports because I know I, I have enough experience to know that every state is essentially every state's required to, to do the this reporting um, so 
that brings us to uh, a good topic to cover about actual species monitoring and reporting. So a lot of people don't realize this, um, but there are a couple of pieces of federal legislation that really impact wildlife monitoring as it pertains to particularly to bobcats and to a lot of wildlife as a, in general. The first is the Pittman-Robertson Act. So back in uh, Wildlife Management 101, we were taught that uh, taught about the PR Act, Pittman-Robertson, and, and basically what that did is states were struggling to manage uh, their game populations, and as a result, the federal government imposed a tax on all hunting-related equipment and gear and all firearms and ammunition. And I can't remember the exact amount of that tax. I know in the fishing side of things, uh, we had something called the Dingle Johnson Act, and that was a 10% tax at the manufacturer level of all fishing lures and fishing equipment and so on. Uh, but anyway, essentially all gun and ammo manufacturers and manufacturers of other hunting equipment are required to pay this tax. The federal government collects this tax and doles this money out to the individual states. And the way they determine how each state gets its money <clears throat> is based on the state's population, the area, size of the state as far as area, and how many hunting licenses or trapping licenses are sold. And in addition to providing that information, basically the state has to show the federal government that, hey guys, we're monitoring our wildlife populations. We're using this money that you send to us um, to do good things, uh, to keep uh, wildlife populations um, managed properly. And that money is significant. It is actually, it is a 75-25 match, meaning states kick in 25%. Usually that comes from hunting and trapping licenses, and the feds match that with 75% of, of these, these funds. So, um, because of that, the states are required to put out reports usually on an annual basis of, uh, of how that money was spent and what they monitored. And a lot of states, some do the minimum and a lot, most go above and beyond and, and show a lot of the results. Now, states have, states that have significantly trapped populations have fur bear biologists. Most, most states do. And they come up with these estimates of harvest. Um, I'm going to go through some bobcat harvest estimates, but before I do that, I need to talk about one other thing, <clears throat> and it's called CITES. And if you're a trapper and you've ever caught an otter or bobcat, you know what CITES is. Uh, CITES is the Convention for International Trade of Endangered Species, and it was basically a treaty that was put together to um, for certain species to be traded internationally they had to have they had to be able to be tracked from where where from whence they originated so um, there were a few species that were on CITES basically it was it was supposed to be endangered species so they didn't want um, all the countries involved in this did not including the US did not want to see illegal trade in endangered uh, populations of certain species 
Now, the complication about with that is because you, you think initially, well, bobcat and otters are not endangered. We know that. <clears throat> They're everywhere. However, bobcats and otters look a lot like other species that aren't doing so well. So in this case of bobcats, they there's a cat somewhere else in the world that their pelt looks a lot like a bobcat pelt. So in order for us to be able to sell any bobcat pelts, the agreement was come to that they would all have CITES tags on them and be able to be tracked and we'd know where they came from. Um, so everywhere in the United States, each state in, in the U.S. is required to put a CITES tag on all bobcats that are harvested. And that tag has to be with that animal in order for it to go anywhere, across state lines, get sold to a fur buyer, um, or get go to uh, go across the country, go over to Canada to be auctioned and go overseas and so on. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a it's a very big hassle. It's unfortunate that trappers at all times have to go to great lengths to satisfy a lot of these things. Um, but I just just want to let you know that it does have a reason. There is a reason behind it. And the thinking instead of glass half empty, thinking glass half full, the CITES regulations also resulted in essentially a mandatory harvest reporting of all bobcats in the United States. So every bobcat that's harvested has to have a CITES tag. And that information is reported to the federal government. And as you know, the federal government is not managed very well. So, uh, my opinion. I'm sure a lot of you agree with that. Um, so you can't just click on a couple of links and all of a sudden have all that information at your fingertips. However, every state knows how many bobcats were harvested in their state because of the CITES regulation. So everything that's legally harvested, we have. Um, states don't require tagging for a lot of species. It, some states require state tagging um, depending on where you're at and what species you're dealing with. And uh, some some don't. But for cats and otters, it's required across the board. So I looked at some bobcat harvest numbers because I want I really wanted to be able to answer this question because I'm gonna be asked. Um, is there a concern? How do we know how many bobcats are harvested? Well, we do know, and that's an easy answer. But is there a concern? The bobcat harvest numbers increasing? Is the population decreasing? Um, and and so on. And <clears throat> I'll just throw out a couple of uh, numbers from different states. And, and I think what, what we're going to see in just, I'll try to f figure out how I get this point across tomorrow. But it, overall, the point that I want to um, get across is that bobcat populations are typically limited by environmental conditions associated with habitat predators and prey and so so what that means is, is oftentimes um, if you go to a northern state like Maine or Min northern Minnesota um, bobcat populations in those areas are typically limited by snow depth they're not bobcats are not well adapted to 
uh, surviving in extremely deep snow. Like in northern Maine, we we have almost no bobcats in northern Maine, essentially none. Um, <clears throat> ironically, the endangered lynx is very common here. But we have two to three plus feet of snow on the ground for four or five months out of the year. <clears throat> Depending on the year. This year, I think it'll be five. Uh, but but anyway, it seems like it anyway. Um, and in other states, bobcat population numbers fluctuate substantially based on the availability of prey. In the West, I think a lot of that is uh, cottontail rabbits. And, and bobcats uh, need rabbits. They're just like lynx need snowshoe hares. They need those animals in, in order to uh, feed effectively and survive. And there's mass starvations when rabbit populations crash. And what, as a result, what we tend to see with the data is that as, as bobcat densities go up, harvest tends to go up as bobcat densities go down harvest tends to go down now that all being said there certainly is a greater incentive to harvest more animals when the prices are high and i think at certain places we did see that um, but again the, the bobcats in order to see that increased harvest the, the cats have to be uh, available to be caught so we all know there was almost a mini fur boom in 2013, 2014. And I hate to call it that because it really wasn't that special, but because we'd been in so many years of low fur prices and, and we saw a little blip there, it seemed seemed great at the time. And that was when we saw, we started to see uh, $500 averages on bobcats in the West. And in some places they averaged $700. Um, <clears throat> this obviously caught the attention of this reporter, but... Um, unfortunately, they're a few years late because those those numbers we're still seeing those numbers for a few top select cats, but for the most part, those averages have gone down to around two to three hundred dollars or less. Now, um, just keeping in mind, we had the that peak in thirteen fourteen of high fur prices. Um, I just threw together some harvest results. I'm looking at the state of Missouri. So Missouri bobcat harvest during that fur boom, 2013-14, they harvested 4,310 cats. The next year, 3,229, and the next year, 2,207. So in that case, the harvest certainly went down. Uh, I'd say that was a reduced harvest because of lower populations, uh, not because of lower bobcat numbers. Uh, in Montana, well, Montana is a different. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, New Mexico. New Mexico bobcat harvest during that 2013-14 season. We saw over 2,057. The next year, 1,649. Then 1,661. And blip up to 1,978. So, uh, again, we're seeing high bobcat harvest in 2013-2014. In um, and pretty steady, but not that high ever since. Uh, Kentucky, again, Kentucky doesn't really have those high prices, but they had good data. So I looked at it 2011 to 2017. So we had 1,200 up to 1,600. Then in 2013, 2014, we had that high fur prices. We had 1,900 and 1,700. And then that dropped down to 1,200, 1,100, 900. 
in Pennsylvania, we from 2010 to 2016, 800, 700, 600, 800, 800, 700. They have a low quality cat anyway. Um, not a whole lot of harvest. Uh, New York bumped up and down, never really went. They had a little bump in 2012, 2013, uh, but they haven't haven't had a lot of harvest. Uh, Wyoming bobcat harvest uh, actually pulled up their they had some information on their fur bear report, and people give Wyoming a better app because they're a very conservative state. People think they don't put a lot into wildlife management, but I I really think they do. I just think they're very thrifty about it, and they're they're smart in the way they spend their money. Um, <clears throat> but I've got some good information, Nebraska and Wyoming. Um, but Wyoming, from 2007 to 2017, so we got essentially 10 years. Um, and again, this is the heart of the West, where there's concern about bobcats being over-harvested. Um, in 2007-08, we had 2,700 cats harvested. This last year was 1,200. Um, that went from 27, 26, 14, 14, 16, 16, 14, 10, 10, 12. Um, so basically, we saw we saw some high numbers early on, but um, really, if anything, I'd say the harvest in bobcats has been either stable or declining there. Um, I could jump through a couple more states. Uh, I think I'll show you Nebraska. <clears throat> yeah, we'll skip Nebraska for now, I guess. It's basically the same thing. Um, looks like... Looks like... Nebraska, yeah, let's go over Nebraska. So Nebraska, basically since 2001, uh, numbers have been pretty steady. Uh, they saw a little drop in 2009 and... 2012, 2013, they had pretty high harvest. 2011, um, then it dropped again. Um, <clears throat> Nebraska, there was virtually, it looks like virtually no harvest historically. And I, I hesitated a little bit because I, I don't want to, I don't know a lot um, about Nebraska. But I think what we're, what we were seeing here was what, what we saw in the Midwestern states is. Uh, Bobcats, bobcat population essentially becoming um, reestablished since it was down from the 1940s all the way through the 1970s and 80s, and since the 90s, just kind of exponential growth in that population. I I don't know for sure that's the case, or if they just got more liberal and allowed more more trapper harvest. Um, I'm gonna read into that a little more uh, before this interview to make sure I know my stuff. Um, but anyway, I guess what I want to show, show by looking at those numbers is that bobcat harvest has not gone up in recent years. In some states, we did see a bit of a peak in, uh, in that 2013, 2012 to 2014 area um, as a result of the higher prices. Uh, but basically, we, we're not in that, we're not seeing increase that since then that the harvest has actually dropped. Um, so is that a result of declining populations? I, I mean, a lot of people look at that number and, you know, you look at, you look at data and you look at one piece of data and you have an agenda and you don't look at anything else, you can make any conclusion you want. So 
um, what I try to do is look at data from all angles and try to be responsible about it and and uh, try to look at the most reasonable conclusion we can come to. So that brings us back to, okay, so we know what the harvest is, but does the harvest tell you about the population? It may or it may not. Depends how you want to look at it. Um, so what's the missing part of this equation? And if you... If you have a little bit of background in wildlife management or biology, you're probably yelling at the microphone right now. Um, and, and I'm getting there. I'm going to talk about it. But basically, uh, harvest doesn't necessarily tell you about the population. And, and, and that thing that rubbed me the wrong way about a little bit about uh, most states, many states don't seem to know how many bobcats they have, um, States do monitor these things. It may not seem apparent to to the layperson, but they do. And that brings us to the final point about this whole bobcat situation. Are bobcat numbers increasing or decreasing? Well, we saw that study that showed that um, that that populations are stable or increasing in essentially all states but one. Um, but where's the data to prove that? And, and that's where trapper surveys come in. And if you're a trapper that keeps records for your DNR, your state agency, um, good on you. Um, I think that's some really valuable information. And uh, every, most state agencies, now, now state agencies monitor these populations. And, and I know they are limited in the resources they have and the money they have to spend and their personnel and fur bears are, you know, not as popular maybe as deer management or or other large game species, um, but but they still are monitored. So, as part of that monitoring, you know, some states uh, actually do tagging, collaring studies. I mentioned earlier, uh, New Hampshire did a big study. Uh, a few other states have done that. Uh, some states have started to use DNA technology. They d they've used like hair traps where they put barbed wire out on baits and they get hair and they they collect DNA. That was part of the New Hampshire study. They took DNA samples and looked at diverse genetic diversity and estimated how many different animals they had um, in the state. Um, some states do track surveys. So they'll go out in the snow, states that have snow, and, uh, and, and track the ride transects and see how many tracks they intersect. Uh, states are starting to do camera trap surveys using trail cameras or game cameras uh, to look at how many um, how many encounters they have, how many pictures they get of these animals. Um, but one of the biggest pieces of data is the trapper survey. And not all trappers respond to this. Some states do a better job than others. But the, the trapper survey is basically sent out to all licensed trappers in a number of states. Um, the reason I, I looked into Wyoming because it was one of those states that had that survey done. And in Wyoming, there was actually close, almost a third of all licensed trappers responded to that survey. And that's pretty amazing information to have. Um, you have a response rate in a voluntary survey that uh, that asks that many different questions and uh, a group of people that you know may or may not trust the the agency that regulates them. Uh, that's pretty amazing to have that response rate. And the reason trapper surveys are so important is because they incorporate 
effort into the harvest of, of these animals. Why is effort important? Because effort is a metric that we use to calculate the number of animals that are in an area. And one of the, one of the most useful calculations that, that we have, and that, that I say we, but I mean wildlife managers have, is uh, called a catch per unit effort. And we basically what that says is I expended this amount of effort and I caught this many animals. And if you're one trapper, that may or may not mean much. But if you have hundreds of trappers putting that data together, all of a sudden you start to have a pretty strong data set that's very meaningful. And so what managers are able to calculate is um, if indeed the prices are going up and the harvest was going up and bobcat numbers are going down but we're still harvesting more, we would have to show a massive increase in effort to catch that same that increasing number of bobcats. Um, because of this cash per unit effort, we're able to determine uh, a, a good estimate of population densities uh, of bobcats in these different states. And what they have shown is um, bobcat harvest went up a little bit, and that's because effort um, on, on the part of trappers was increased as a result of high prices. And the bobcat harvest has gone down in the last few years, and that is because of a corresponding lower effort by trappers um, that are not pursuing as many bobcats because of the lower prices. Um, so basically, that's it in a nutshell. Um, I hope that made sense. I, I know I kind of bounced around a lot of different areas in that. Um, hopefully, I'll get my thoughts gathered together, sleep on it, and... and uh, be able to uh, to present those ideas in uh, in the interview tomorrow, um, but but it's really encouraging to be able to just you know run through a few websites and based on some of the knowledge I had ahead of time to to actually look into this and realize no we're actually you know as a whole the the states are doing a great job managing these bobcat populations we have a lot of data and bobcat numbers are really healthy and. It may be disappointing for someone looking to write a story about it, uh, or maybe not. Um, if they're good, they'll be able to spin in any direction they want. But um, basically, it, it's uh, it's pretty cool to see uh, s some successful wildlife management uh, and and to show that trapping does play a very important role in wildlife management. And as trappers, we are harvesting a sustainable, renewable resource, and we're taking the surplus from these populations. In fact, we're not impacting these populations in a negative way. So that's a pretty cool thing. Um, and we can we can and should be proud of that as trappers. So anyway, with that, I'm going to call it a night. And thank you so much for listening. If you have any comments uh, to add, just throw them in there. It's going to be, by the time you hear this, it's going to be a little too late. I'll have done the interview. What's done is done. But, uh, but it would be useful to have that information and insight anyway. So... Uh, have a great night and uh, keep on trapping. If you're not trapping, keep on thinking about trapping and we'll catch you in the next episode. Thanks.